Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. In Ireland, assaults are one of the most frequently encountered crimes any Garda will deal with. Not only that... They can be notoriously difficult to investigate. They are rarely premeditated. And it can be difficult to pinpoint people's motives. A lot of these type of assaults can be alcohol fueled, uh, drug uh, induced people. It can be words said to another person, maybe in a chipper or uh, whatever, like you're looking at me girlfriend crooked or something. It doesn't take much for a fella to throw a punch. Pat's lost count at the amount of assaults he's dealt with. Hundreds, if not thousands. Most amount to very little, and are usually kept away from the judicial system. But not all. I dealt with a few of those where someone gets a punch, they fall, bang their head, and next minute they're unconscious, they're on life support. Some of them pull through, some of them don't. And these cases, ones that aren't premeditated, but are as every bit severe as Mary Goff or Rachel Callaly's savage beatings. They bring their own difficulties to an investigating officer, something Pat would find out about in very real terms. You could actually see the footprint of the pattern of the boot that whoever wore it was standing on his face, like and jumping on his face. So whatever I do here, I can be happy. I'll see him again. And that's huge. If I get led astray or get in too deep into what, he, what happened to him and all that, I just go, hold on a minute now. I know what he'd want. And I know what I'm going to get when it's all over. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Ian Doyle. This is our third case of Pat Murray's career, as he moves up the ranks to become one of the country's most senior detectives. If you've enjoyed our series so far, please take a moment and leave us a review in your podcast app. Or even better, tell a friend about the show. The years after the Joe O'Reilly investigation were busy for Pat. By the time he was sentenced in 2007, Pat had earned some notoriety within the Gardaí. After all, it was one of the biggest cases the state had ever seen. Pat was still a plainclothes detective, but he felt a promotion might be coming down the line. The detective inspector that was in the Loud Division retired, and uh, they had a vacancy. 
Pat was asked by his chief superintendent would he be interested in taking it on. After all, he deserved it and he'd worked hard for it. I said I would, I would be glad to do it and I'll do my best and that was it. So I, the 13th of October 2010 was the day I was given the responsibility of Detective Inspector. He'd be taking on more responsibility and now leading a larger team in his district. Men he'd never encountered before, but it was a challenge he was ready for. One of the first things on his agenda was to get a new suit. He wasn't going to be working in plain clothes anymore. I felt great and I'll tell you why, because I said, yeah, I'm here now. I've made what I wanted to be like, you know. All I ever wanted to be was a detective. And now I'm a detective inspector. He was born on a Monday, about half one, here in the dock. Took Veronica to the hospital about three o'clock in the morning. Dave Dore speaks about his son Niall from their dining room in Dundalk. He's the type of father who illuminates pride when speaking of his family. I remember when he was eight years of age, inside in the sitting room. The hall door was open here and the sitting room door was wide open. It was about eight o'clock at night, he was getting ready to go to bed. So he's sitting inside in the sitting room with his dressing gown on and his slippers on. And myself and Veronica in the kitchen heard this laughing going on. What is this? And it was coming, getting louder and louder. So we kind of snuck up the corridor and looked in and in the, the crack of the hinge in the door. And here's your man, Tommy Tiernan's on the telly. And Niall is in the nuts laughing. He absolutely couldn't get over this guy. He was about eight or nine. And it moved on from there. He went to other comedians. He'd sit on the computer here and he'd be looking at comedians. And anything to make him laugh, that's what he wanted to do. Niall loved Dundalk and everything about it. He was a popular boy in school and was talented at most things he picked up, particularly kickboxing, which he spent most of his time doing. He was also, clothes-wise, fashion-wise, certainly upper market. The dearer the gear, the better. If you offered him a 20 euro pair of runners and an 80 euro pair of runners, I couldn't tell you the difference. Niall would be straight in, he said, they're the ones. He used to take me shopping, I'm colourblind, and going into a shop with me and shopping is a dangerous thing on my own. He'd come with me. Great bit of stuff. After finishing his Leaving Cert in 2010, Niall wasn't quite sure what to do with himself. He enjoyed school, but wasn't sure if college would be right for him. After discussing it with his parents, he decided to inquire about the Irish Defence Force. They were looking for new recruits at the time. After a few weeks pulling together the written application, he was invited for an interview. Things were beginning to take shape for him, and the whole family were delighted. And on the day of his interview, he came back, he was in Dublin with his mother, rings me on the phone. I said, well, how did the interview go? How was that? And he says, great, Dad, really feel good about it, you know. And I, I think it's, it should be in the bag. It's great. There was no mistakes, no errors. Said what he needed to say. He'd done a lot of research. He knew what he was going, he was about with the interview. I says to him, I says, well done. I'll talk to you when you get home. It's the last time I talked to him. That day in question was October 13th, 2010. Coincidentally, Pat's last day as a plainclothes detective. I had to uh, finish my court day and that's exactly what I did that 
completed at four or five o'clock that day. And I remember saying, geez, that's great. I'm finished here. I don't have to come in here anymore to be representing cases. And I was delighted. I know I went home. I changed uh, into my suit and my shirt and tie and took a bit of a rest and a bit of grub and stuff and came back in then to take up as a detective inspector. And uh, I, uh, like, you know, it's, it's phenomenal when you think of it, like the 13th of October, 2010. And I was, you know, now the detective inspector. And that evening at nine o'clock, my own chief superintendent rang, so that's been a very, very bad assault, seemingly in uh, in Dundalk. And there's a young guy uh, uh, brought to hospital. I think he he might have died, you know, or he's, he's very near it. Got a text from a friend of Niles to say that he, he had heard that Niall had been involved in a row and had been taken to hospital by ambulance, but he was fine. It was just a precaution they were taking of Gerardo. So, right, okay. So no need to panic yet, I said to myself. So Shane was here, and I said, Shane, me and you should go down to Drada. Yeah, he said, yeah, sure. So I went down to Drada, into the hospital, met the doctor, saw an eye lying unconscious. I said to the doctor, I says, well, what's the story? Ah, he says he'd be grand. He's just, you know, we, we'll get him back. He'd be, he'd be okay, and uh, no, no need to worry. He should be grand. He's okay. He's just a bit concussed. Dave was unsure what to think. Niall looked in a bad way. But the doctors told him he'd be okay. It gave him a slight sense of relief, but he wasn't totally convinced. Five minutes later, a doctor and nurse entered the waiting room. It was one of those moments where the energy in the room just flipped in an instant. She sits down on one side of me, he sits the other side. He's talking, she has her hand on my leg. I can't remember exactly what he said. But I I stopped him, I said, listen, I said, hold on a minute. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 been very bad and 1 been very good. What number is Niall? He's is a 9. Oh man, everything falls out of you. You're just sitting there. All your, all your insides are gone. Everything is gone. Your heart is gone. Your brain is fried. Dave drove home to deliver the news to Veronica. A parent's worst nightmare had just become a reality. Now, I left within 10 minutes of hearing the news to go to Veronica. So I had to go drive home. Oh, my God, when I think of that drive home. Oh. And I come in here to the kitchen then, and she says, where's Niall? Oh, I'm not going to go through that anymore. I mean, enough. But, I mean, that was, that was that's the worst ever, ever. And that was Wednesday night. <laughs> and we buried him on Tuesday. And from that time that I stood, that that doctor told me what he told me, until the day after the funeral, that six days is the worst six days. I don't know. I know there was people around, and everyone was sympathising and help, helping out, and everything was in that regard superb. But it was just I, I, I cannot even even if my thoughts go back to it, I skip on to something else. The severity of the assault is something that still sticks with Pat. I was at the post-mortem and Mary Cassidy done the post-mortem and on Niall's face, you could actually see the footprint of the pattern of the boot that whoever wore it was standing on his face, like and jumping on his face. Like it was terrible really when you think about it. Like when they removed the skull, 
and the brain was there and Mary Cassidy even said, she said, God, I've never seen a brain so mushed. The right side of his brain was nearly was mush compared to the other side. Like it was you could see it, I could look at I was looking at myself, it was do you know what I mean? You could see how badly damaged it was, like, you know. And uh, he had a um a crack in his skull as well, like, you know, which was as a result of the the boot jumping jumped on his head. He was very badly assaulted, yeah, extremely badly assaulted, yeah. If I think of Niall or think of him in the hospital, and if I start thinking too deeply about it, I have to move on to something else because if I get embedded in them thoughts, it ruins me. It, it takes me too long to get out. I mean, I'm not talking days, but I'm talking, it could be an hour or two, and I have to pull myself back and go again, go somewhere. So I have to train myself to pull out of them thoughts and go to another thought, something, somewhere else, anything, to get away from the thoughts of what happened. Pat couldn't believe it. He dealt with so many high-profile cases leading up to this point, but launching a murder investigation on his first day as DI, that was never part of the script. He had to travel to Dundalk Garda Station. Known in the force as Fort Apache, it was a place he'd never set foot in previously. He was nervous about meeting the officers that would be working under him on the case. I went in and it was packed with other people. And people were looking at me and I was looking at them, I hadn't a clue. And I just said to the guy beside me, I said, um, I'm looking for a fella called James Doherty, is he here? Oh, he says, that's me. And I says, well, I'm Pat Murray, I'm the new detective. Said, oh, how are you doing? And we shook hands on that. And he says, yeah, look, we'll sit up here at the table and we'll get started. From that day to this, myself and James have remained good friends. And we said, look, we'll have to get the preservation of the scene, the first members at the scene, all of that type of stuff. And we made out our, our jobs them to be statements to come in to the, who was the first person at the scene, what did they do, what happened, who were the ambulance personnel, uh, who was the doctor to pronounce them dead, and all of those type of jobs have to be generated for because you need all that information in. Dave and Veronica were inconsolable. Pat made a visit to their house to inform them he'd be leading the case. He was adamant he'd bring justice to the family. Like They were devastated, yeah, and I spoke to Veronica, who was... Uh, Niall's mother, like, she was just turned inside out with what happened, like, you know. Here they had two sons, one then the next day only one, and their son was taken from them by a tug who just beat him to death. Those days around the funeral, they rocked Dave. Some parts of that week remain blurry for him, but others are as clear as day. Eleven years later, the support from their local community still overwhelms him. There was a candle-lit vigil, kind of a vigil, where he was killed is on the Castle Road. Now, Veronica's never been back to that spot again since. And, I, you know, I understand completely why she wouldn't. But there was a candle-lit started and, uh, by somebody or whoever, I don't know. And then there was a kind of a shrine built up. And at the same time, every evening, myself and Shane would make it our business to call up. And it went on for a few weeks. And candles, new candles coming, and people like new stuff. and Fantastic outpouring, you know. And when you consider at the time when we were here in the house, a mate of mine who was here around the clock afterwards told me, he says, Dave, he says, if you don't mind me telling you, he says, I did an estimate on how many people called to the house. He says, my estimate, he says, give or take a hundred or two, two and a half thousand people. We said Veronica come from a town called Mohol in Leitrim. The population is about 900. I'd say at least half of them are here at some stage. Unbelievable, like, 
it was just, you know, so grateful to people. You don't get to thank them all. You never will. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more. It seemed that the further Pat progressed in his career, the further north of the island he'd be posted. He got to know many of the border towns well, and noticed the effect the Troubles had on the region, namely, the public's relationship with the police. Locals were often less forthcoming with information on crime. Paramilitary intimidation had created a tight-lipped culture, and it was something that stuck around once the Troubles finished as did many of the gangs. He needed to chat to anyone who witnessed the assault, and thankfully this time around, people were willing to talk. We'd done door-to-door inquiries pretty quick, and people had said, yes, we heard the commotion. Niall and his two friends came round the corner, and there were six or seven of these people walking down towards them. The two guys with Niall had a verbal altercation with some of the group, they'd come across at a fair or something like that the night before. The group were getting agitated and wanting to fight and all this, that and the other, and Niall Dorr had stepped in as a peacemaker to say, stop, you know, this is not right, we shouldn't be doing this. And the gang ran after, um, ran after the two guys, and one person stayed behind where Niall Dorr was and hit him a box and knocked him to the ground and then continued to beat him. And what he did to the, what he did to Niall, oh my God. He, he bet him up. He banged his head off the ground on several occasions, so bad that he split his brain in two. He left a boot mark on the side of his face. dragged him 50 yards and dumped him under a car. 
he was a slight lad. He was only about five foot seven, less than ten stone weight. Now, he'd look after himself because of his kickboxing training. He'd been twelve years kickboxing at that stage, or ten years kickboxing. He knew well. Look, you don't fight for no good reason. You fight to defend yourself. End of story. He wasn't been attacked. Why would he? Def- why would he attack anybody? So he would naturally. And I've seen him doing it. Stand in. Look at lads. Don't be a. Bah. I don't think he even got a chance. He was pronounced dead in, in the hospital and that, you know. That's all I had, really. So the question was to who are these people, like, you know, and could we uh, establish who they were. So the scene was preserved and uh, the whole street was preserved where this young chap was found unconscious. There was no CCTV at the scene, a blow for the case, as it mounted more pressure on Pat gathering solid witness statements. We had one gentleman who said uh, he was looking out a bedroom window and he shouted at them to get to clear off. He saw one man attacking a young guy and standing and stomping on his head and kicking him, and, but he couldn't describe him. But this is where you look at investigations and detail is so, so important. He saw him dragging him off the road. He says, as he was dragging him off the road, the T-shirt come off the young fella. And he says, then he saw him lifting his head up and banging it off the wheel of the car and then stamping and jumping on his head as hard as he could and kicking him. And, you know, he was shouting at him to go away and that. But he said he could tell us his T-shirt came off. And that was the T-shirt that we believed was beside or near to the, the injured party Uh, when the guards arrived and that was seized and put in the ambulance. There was two girls there and we could establish that the girls didn't get involved but that they were part of the group and that one of them had a car and we knew then from uh, witnesses and that that they got into this car and took off after the assault. Niall had visited the doctors with Veronica it's about 12 months before he died. He spotted a pile of organ donation cards in a holder on the table in front of him. So he keeps looking at it. And he gives it to Veronica and he says, Ma'am, will you hold that for me? And I'll have a read of it later on. So they came home, went to the doctor, came home. He's in the kitchen. He says, Ma'am, remember that card I gave you? Give me a look at that again, will you? So he took the card. So he takes the card. He goes into the sitting room upstairs, wherever he was. He comes back down. Ma'am, give me a pen. I want to sign that. I still have that card to this day. Niall had decided his organs were going to be donated. Tremendous. Because of Niall, five people's lives have improved drastically as he donated his heart, lungs, kidneys, liver and pancreas. For Dave, a part of his son continues to live on. You know, not too many 18-year-olds, I'd say, walking around with one of them in his hand. But um, yeah, very proud of him for that. Really proud. Pat needed to try and identify who was with him at the crime scene that night. Thankfully, Niall's two friends were able to identify two of the five men involved. I knew these guys and I knew myself if you took them in they were going to tell you nothing anyway. So you have to have some basis for a reasonable suspicion that they were involved in the murder of, of Niall Dorr. We had another witness who witnessed what happened and uh, he was a distance away. He wouldn't be able to identify. He said, I wouldn't be able to identify the guy. All I can tell you about him is that he was wearing a shirt and he had some sort of a grey hoodie on him. Pat's team were instructed to collect as much CCTV footage from the town as possible. 
shops, restaurants, traffic junctions, anything that might help with the identification. Because there's every possibility these boys are on the RAS or whatever, or they were somewhere else earlier in the day. Through some digging, they were able to establish that the five men were meant to be in court earlier on that morning. Two face charges of assault, and again, the case didn't go ahead, and it was, it was adjourned, and they thought this was great, and they went on the tear. From whatever time it was, that day, 12 o'clock that day, until 8 o'clock that night, they were well tanked up and merry, and we got CCTV from a lot of premises who contacted us, as I think those guys were in Maros that day, and we were able to identify the two people that were to- we were told were at the scene, and we could identify the other three people with them. And then the two girls uh, joined the, the, that group later on in the evening, and we were able to put together the five of them, and we knew their names and the whole lot, but who was responsible for killing Nido, or who stamped on his head and who, who kicked him to death like, you know? We knew it was one of the five. After trawling through footage from all over the town, they came across something of note. And in the last pub they were in, we have him coming out of the pub and he putting on a grey hoodie over his shirt. As often in cases like this, it was a collection of small details that got Pat what he needed. Douglas Ward, a local man, was identified as the person in the grey hoodie. He was now the chief suspect for the murder of Niall Dore. As Pat's own investigation work was progressing nicely, the months ahead, they got no easier for the Dorr family. There was no visible step downwards in the grief, in the, in the level of toughness of the grief. There was no increase. It was just something I was dealing with and I had to get my head around. How am I going to deal with this thing? So I used to go for every morning, I get into the car and I go to Carningford and around Giles' Key and just go for walks just to get my head around. Now, Veronica was doing her thing, she's doing her own thing, and I was doing my thing, Shane was doing his thing. And we were always constantly talking to each other about it. We'd always been, I was in every conversation that we were talking about nearly. Regular trips to the grave. But I had to get my head around it. Another vital bit of information made its way to Pat from a friend of Ward's who was present that night. After the assault, some of the men left the scene in a car in search of a house party. Do you remember Douglas Ward had got a nosebleed when he was in the car and he took tissues out of the glove compartment and wiped his nose and, and when we got to our de- near destination he threw them out the window. Pat sent a team of men to search the car park for the tissues. It was certainly a long shot, but worth investigating. A few minutes into the search and bingo, they found the tissues, bagged them up and brought them back to the lab for forensic examination. So we now had a DNA profile of these tissues, which we reasonably believed was Douglas Ward's blood. Unless someone else had got their nose bleeding and threw tissues in the exact same spot. You know, what's the likelihood of that? Pat wanted to chat to Ward, but he knew that he'd be hard-pressed getting anything tangible from him. He denied any involvement in the assault. He denied even being there. He said uh, he was around that time, but he was going to a party in a house. Douglas Ward gave Pat the address of the house and he followed up the lead. 
the guy, I know he was a Scottish guy, and he said, oh yeah, they were knocking on my door, they wanted to come in and have a party and drink, and I says, no, I wasn't having any of it, and they can take off and they can clear off. And he distinctly told us that when they left his apartment block and out the gate, they turned left, the whole lot of them, including Douglas Ward, down towards where the assault took place. So there's Douglas Ward telling us a lie, and how do we verify that with more circumstantial evidence. When Douglas was first arrested, one of Pat's colleagues asked him if he'd be willing to go on an identification parade, a sort of police lineup that you might be more familiar with seeing on your TV screen. And in this country, uh, he has the right to say no. <laughs> so he said no, he wouldn't uh, go on an identity parade. And so that means that we can do an informal identification parade at a later stage to see if he was picked out. And it holds the same strength as if he was picked out on a lineup, you know. We knew he was going to collect the dole on a certain day, as simple as that. And we put our uh, witness sitting in the car. We had him primed if he saw the person that he saw assault on our door to put his hand up. And we had a plainclothes guard waiting to see a man put up his hand, he would say on the radio, yet yeah, he's identified. A few minutes into the operation, Ward pulls up in a car. He gets out and collects his payment. In and out, in a couple of minutes. The only issue was, though, there was no signal from their witness. We let the process run for another half an hour or just to be fair to Douglas Ward or whatever. We counted there was something like 1,500 people in that period of time had come and gone, like, you know, so there was, it was a fairly comprehensive scattering of people. Anyway, we called the operation off. The men walked over to chat to the witness, just to confirm nothing substantial was seen. And the witness said, oh, just wait till I tell you, it was a fella came there in a in a, in a black car and pulled in there and he went in and uh, he was wearing a black top and then he picked out, you know, he says, Jesus, it looked very like him. I think that's him, but, I, but he was just a bit nervous of putting his hand up. So that was it. What do you do? You're left then with a situation that identification parade was held, informal identification parade was held, and it was a negative result. A small setback in the case, but there was still more evidence to work with. Dave Dorr is quite a religious man. He leaned into his faith even more so, once Niall passed away. If you were to say to me and Veronica, I know for, for a fact, if you were to say to the two of us that when this life is over, we're not going to see Niall again, if you could convince me of that, then I'd be in big trouble. Because I'd latch on to that like you wouldn't believe. So whatever I do here, I can be happy. I'll see him again. And that's huge. If I get led astray or get in too deep into what, it, what happened to him and all that, I just go, hold on a minute now. I know what he'd want. And I know what I'm going to get when it's all over. So I'm happy. And I'm, I, look, I'd love to have him around. But given the circumstances I'm in, these thoughts keep me right and keep me going. From the witness statements, Pat knew that Douglas Ward had pulled Niall down by his shirt, clenching onto his shoulders and dragging his body under the car. I went to the forensic lab, I got the t-shirt they had 
and I, we got it and we laid it out and uh, they laid it out and all and I, I said I needed two things here I needed to divide the t-shirt up into inch squares and I need you to see if there's any other DNA on that t-shirt other than Nile Dorr's. The results came back and the DNA was a match to the tissues that they believed to be wards. And also we found a full cigarette at the scene not too far from Niall Dorr's body and uh, it was a full cigarette and it had the DNA on it was that of Douglas Ward's as well. Lovely stuff. Then we went to Veronica and I asked her about the t-shirt and she said that t-shirt he wore to the interview like under his and I washed it and cleaned it and ironed it and he had it fresh on. So what's the likelihood of Douglas Ward's DNA being on that t-shirt other than at a time of the assault? That was my thinking, and I think any reasonable person would think that. So I believed then at that stage I had him, I had enough, I, I, I have you. Pat made contact with the DPP. Previously, he'd used forensic evidence many times in his career, but never before had it held so much weight on a conviction. I looked for a murder charge on the basis that the intent was there by the vicious actions of Douglas Ward and, and Niall Dorr, like the injuries sustained and the, the pathologist's report of all the injuries and that, and that he should be charged with murder. Like, you know, they, 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 we had every angle of it covered really as best we could. The DPP came back after reading the file and my recommendations and they said, yes, charge him with murder. Two years passed before the case would come to trial. As Pat had previously learned with Colin Whelan, this period of time can often throw a curveball or two your way. And this case was no different. One of the five of that group in the meantime had died in a road traffic accident. We believed that Douglas Ward and his defence team were going to put the blame on the deceased person, that he's the person that done the, all the, the kicking and this, that and the other and that uh, it wasn't him, that he might have just held his T-shirt at some stage, like, you know, but just didn't, wasn't involved in the actual. That would have been a huge problem in a trial, like, you know. So a few days before the case was, I think, due to start, but I remember going up to Dublin with Pat Murray and a couple of his team, and we were to meet the um, prosecution barrister, Brendan Graham, and the DPP, and they wanted to discuss the case. We sat in the room anyway, and... We were going to have our peace. We were sitting there and uh, it came across that the aggressor had pleaded to the manslaughter charge and to be no trial, but he was going to go for manslaughter. So it's up to then, like, the DPP, will they accept that? And, of course, I was consulted, knowing the difficulties and knowing the law and knowing, you know, what happens at trials, that there was that huge doubt going to be created that it wasn't Douglas Ward, that done the kicking. If you go to court and you're prosecuting for murder and something goes wrong, could this guy walk? Who's going to put a percentage on that? Is it a 10% chance? Is it a 50% chance? Now, we had a serious case, but the defence would also say, well, hold on a minute. This is an unreliable witness. This is not a good witness. This, the real witness is dead. So I got up anyway at that meeting and made a passionate plea that this should be going to murder. Dave was furious, but over time... His feelings on the results of that day have somewhat changed. The way it panned out was the best we could have hoped for, although when you're a dad 
of someone who's been brutally beaten the way and beaten to death the way he was, which was beyond the pale savagery. You have to accept, look, you're not going to get it all. You'll get some, but you won't get it all. On the 30th of October, 2012, Douglas Ward was sentenced to manslaughter and began his 16-year prison sentence in Mount Joy. Like many defendants do, once he was behind bars, he appealed the severity of his conviction. He reckoned he got too strong a sentence. Now, in my mind, he should have got 50 years, but however, I don't count. But anyway, he made the argument that he was drunk and that he he had uh, he was an alcoholic and that being an alcoholic is a disease and part of what he got involved in with Nyldor was down to the fact that he had a disease and an ailment. What they did bring with them was a letter from the chaplain of the prison this guy was in and in the letter he said that this guy was a model prisoner and that it had been mentioned during the case that he had a drink issue, whatever it was. Like. The man, the chaplain, put in the letter that he hadn't had a drink since he went to prison. And the three wise men then on the appeals on the appeals court gave him three years off. I was just beside myself, and beside us in the court, his family and friends were there, and they're cheering and roaring and the whole thing. He's after killing my son the way he did it. He gets three years off, a 16-year sentence, and these guys are cheering and roaring, and this is great, Craig. Oh, he was beside me. Oh, man. I wasn't as... It's a long time since I was that raging. And I walked on. I could see Pat and the other guards were there as well, and, of course, nobody's happy. There was one final twist in the story, one neither Pat or Dave could have anticipated. Justice was done on the end of the day because I think he was only in for about two years and then he died in prison. He drank some of this prison hooch. Uh, I don't know how it's done. I think it's a mixture of the mestas and someone was saying that they undo, to take water from the heating system or something. I don't know. I don't understand it. But anyway, uh, he drank that and died. So I guess justice was done on the end of the day, like, you know. You might think that Dave Dorr would have been ecstatic on hearing the news of Ward's death. That real justice had been delivered. But that wasn't necessarily the case. I wouldn't wish the death penalty or death on anyone like that, and I don't think any sane person would. It's madness. You know, if he got out of jail and was to go to England or go to America or somewhere, look, he served a sentence, I'd be, I'd be okay with that. It'd just be, he would be living around the dock. I know that for a fact he'd still be living in the dock. And I'd have to see him. Maybe once a year, twice a year, how many times I'd see him. Veronica would see him. Shane would see him. It wouldn't be good. The pain never eases, but if I was to come back here and and sit there at that table, say a month after he died, I said, Dad, I want five minutes with you. What would he have said to me? We all know what he'd say. He'd say, Dad, don't grieve unnecessarily for me. Get on with your bloody life. We'll all meet when this is over. Just get on with it, do the best you can, and I'll be here when you're finished. Next time, on The Making of a Detective. The steroid he had in his system was used by bodybuilders and that. And yes, that steroid would have been in his system at the time of his wife's death. 
The Making of a Detective is brought to you by The Irish Sun. This episode was written and produced by me, Ian Doyle, with Gavin Dowd on research. If you want to learn more about the life and career of Detective Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective, by Penguin Books. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.